Welcome to A Flash of Beauty, the podcast, an audio experience dedicated to the further exploration of Bigfoot and the people Bigfoot has revealed itself to. What started as a documentary of personal narrative encounter stories and expert testimony has now shifted into a deeper inquiry into the forever changed lives of those that have witnessed firsthand this hidden truth. My name is Tobe Johnson co-producer of Flash of Beauty Bigfoot Revealed. Join me along with the crew and creators of this doc, director Brett Eichenberger, producer Jill Rimmen-Snyder, and cinematographer Michael Ferry, as we go back into the trees to sit down once again with each guest in search of the truth, no matter how strange. All right, we're back with Jill and Brett. Mike will be with us here shortly as we enter into this interview. But first, let's start with you two. Hello. Hi, Tom. Hello. Good evening. Hello. Hello. Okay, so we got a, uh, a heck of a guest. Again, Scott Tompkins of Bigfoot Mapping Project at BigfootMap.com is how you can get a hold of him. And we, uh, we talked to Scott about not only the process that is listed in the documentary of how he chronicled and got Bigfoot collated into one data set. And he walks the audience through that. But, you know, he's also a witness. These are things I had no idea. You know, a lot of people that are fans of the foot aren't necessarily witnesses of the foot, but he sure is. So there's some surprises in this episode. Jill, what were some surprises that you caught? Uh, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil anything, but towards the end, when the, the Nevada conversation mm-hmm. uh, came up, um, I'll just put that out there. Um, I really enjoyed, uh, hearing about his sighting. I mean, that was amazing. Um, yeah, just the whole process of how, like, mm-hmm. kind of like his, his origin story on how this whole project came to be. So, yeah, Brad, yeah. any thoughts? I just, I just think it's like I was saying. This is one of my favorite episodes for sure, and and what Scott's doing is such important work for Bigfoot research. You know, and this doesn't have anything to do with what camp you're in, flesh, blood, paranormal, whatever. It doesn't change the fact that people are seeing these things on a very regular basis. And Scott has built this wonderful repository, I think, that that is so mm-hmm. beautifully and elegantly done that it lends itself to um, really putting Bigfoot on the map in the world of science, because data is hard to ignore. And this is great data. It really is. And, and he's doing such a fantastic job. It's only getting better. And not only that, Brett, but, you know, he said that they're not skewing the data. If a report comes in and it's a little bit on the kind of weird side, that's what that's what the witness saw. So it's important to include that mm. instead of you know there are some organizations out there that will just kind of nip and tuck and mm-hmm. water it down strictly to uh, what you know what serves them. Yeah. Um, but he's putting it all out there. Yeah. Yeah. If you see a Bigfoot in a UFO, just to kind of a tease, some of the stuff Scott talks about it, Scott puts it in there, you know, mm-hmm. and that's really, really important because uh, as we talk about in our sequel, we know there's other things going on right now and we can't just throw that 
information in the trash because it's real. It's really happening to people. And the stuff that's happening is very significant. So having an open and honest forum where people can go and, um, you, you know, anonymously um, leave their reports, I think it's just super valuable for the research. Not only that, you know, there's some predictive elements. As you listen to this episode, we'll talk about maybe how you could have a sighting, not only by looking at the map and seeing where these supposed cluster points are, reported cluster points, but other things that, uh, you know, go along with collating data as far as maybe how they travel, where they travel, what time they travel, all that stuff is listed in here. And Scott has put in the yeoman's work to collate it down. So check out the bigfootmap.com. Also, he's a member of Project Zoobook. We just talked about that with Amy Boo. Jill, final thoughts. He is by far the best dressed uh, interview <laughs> subject in a flash of beauty Bigfoot reveal. Right. He is like the J. Crew of Flash of Beauty. All right, let's get into it. Our interview with Scott Tompkins. All right, with us now is Scott Tompkins of the Bigfoot Mapping Project. Throughout history in the world, Bigfoot has gone by many names. Sasquatch, Yowie, Honey Island, Swamp Monster, Momo, Orang Pendek, the Wooly Booger, my personal favorite, and Yeti. But no matter how you know it, the experience of seeing or hearing a Bigfoot will remain as vivid a memory as ever. Share your sightings and what you remember about them here at the Bigfoot Map. Hello, Scott. Hello. Happy to be here. It's great to have you on board. You know, we were catching up before the show here, and I was complimenting you on your website. Tell people a little bit about uh, yourself and how you got involved with seamlessly mapping Bigfoot sightings across the world online. Sure. I'll give you the Cliff Notes version, because if you let me, I, I might take up the whole segment. So, um I have a degree from SUNY Cortland in Geographic Information Systems, which is GIS for, if you like acronyms. So I uh, set off on my professional journey by jumping into a geophysical exploration straight out of college. And uh, doing that, I was doing field mapping for um, oil and gas exploration, seismic testing and things. And as I was traveling the country in states like West Virginia and Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, Texas, you name it, really, I started to talk to people and get um, these stories, not only about their property, because we had to learn about what was on their property and what they did out there, but also the history of their property. And really what people like to share are the most unusual things that had happened on their properties. And I really started to become like um, a novice or an amateur like um, anthropologist, right? Collecting these stories, just getting an anecdotal evidence about what people had experienced or what their relatives had experienced on their properties or that had they seen in the area. And I just kind of connected the two, my um, collegiate background, my, my, my education, my profession, and uh, what people were telling me. And then I also grew up in upstate New York and had an experience myself with what I think may have been a Bigfoot. So really with that influence, I just had a festering idea in the back of my mind that maybe one day I can make an application that would crowdsource and put all of these sightings and stories and reports and photos and evidence into a central repository 
that people could then submit uh, all their information to in real time, basically, and put it all on a map. Um, so this is a living repository. And it's constantly, I think since the last time we met, I've got 600 sightings. So uh, it's grown quite a bit in the last two years. And that's kind of how I started and what influenced me to take the time when quarantine hit to sit down and actually learn how to do what, what I needed to do to get it, make it, you know, bring Frankenstein to life. So it was, uh, that's the origin story for Bigfoot Mapping Project. It's kind of a long weaving story, which I'm sure we'll get into more details. Yeah. I mean, it's a, like I said, it's a seamless site and we're Bigfooters and we're used to, you know, clunky programs that don't do very much or just um, long-winded stories. You cut right to the chase. And so describe what people look at, not only when they submit a report and how they submit a report, but what they'll see when they get to the website at bigfootmap.com. Sure. Uh, when you get to the homepage, there's a, our logo, the big logo. And when you click the logo, it brings you right into the web application is what you see on the map. There's also a mobile app, mobile application that you can get on Android and iOS. They all look the same. They all operate on the same backend framework. So when you submit a site from mobile or the web application, it's all going into the same database. And when you get there, um, all you have to do is click the report a sighting bu button and it brings up the form. It's a standardized form. The idea behind that being that when you capture standardized data, you can do better analysis because now everything's in, in the same units, in the same format, in the same column, and all the data is organized well. So you can really start to pull out what you need and make relationships between things a lot easier rather than reading through anecdotal evidence like full paragraphs and stories that people would submit, which we still capture that as well. But the the measurable information or things I want to look at are like radial buttons or drop downs or things like that where you can select specific values. So uh, when you get there, you'll see the big map of the US and you can, I'm actually looking at right at right at it, uh, right now. So you see the big map of the US with a bunch of sightings on it. There's about 8,000 sightings total in the database. Um, and those, I cannot take credit for all the 8,000 uh, collecting those. What I did was I went, I found a site called Manjani's database and uh, the person who was running that stopped in 2016. I've never talked to them. I just found the site and re realized that it wasn't updated since 2016. So I was able to get those, that entire database and massage it so that it fit the format that I needed to get it into the map and, and put it into a standardized database. So I put all of those historical sightings into the map so they don't get lost, right? They're not gonna get lost to time if somebody doesn't continue to pay for that domain or the server goes down and that's all just lost. So I'm hoping that I'm picking up the torch and doing a good job by um, pointing everybody when they click on those to the original source of those sightings. So I'm not passing that off as, Bigfoot mapping project data by any means. It's just supplemental data and it always points to the original source. So if somebody submitted a sighting on the Kentucky Bigfoot Research Organization's page, that's where you're going to go to read it from the map. You're always going to the original research organization. Then the, uh, the red dots that you see on the map are the submissions that have been collected via crowdsourcing from the Bigfoot mapping project, right? Those, those have come in through the app or the web application. 
And when you click on those, you're going to see similar information, but it's a little more standardized because I had a little more control since we started from scratch uh, to, to keep a format. Um, and then there's uh, buttons down the side. If you're looking on the, the website uh, on the web app where you've got the legend, you can share the map, you can look at elevation profiles, um, you can turn layers on and off, make layers different transparency. And as you zoom in, there are other layers that appear more information in the map. So the map's never gonna be too busy to read. I put a lot of time into making sure that it's legible because if you have a map that's not legible, you're really gonna get nothing out of it. You're not gonna be able to derive what you need. So it needs to be simple and well done. And that's where cartography principles come in. So I tried to marry all of that together and put it in a package for everyone that's easy to digest. You know, Brett, Jill, Mike, it reminds me of the map Stan Avery brings up. It's a digital version of what Stan was talking about down in Southern Oregon. And I really haven't seen a map since that time because um, I, I saw a copy of it myself. And this is just Buck Rogers compared to, you know, what was available back then. So if you saw the map in Flash of Beauty, just imagine that on steroids via your android or apple device and this is an app that they can just download to the phone simply just upload the app like you would google maps and there it is yeah you just go to the android or ios app store and just mm -hmm. type in bigfoot map all one word that's the name of the app and it is a dollar 99 i will put that out there but it keeps the lights on for the project so mm -hmm. uh as you point out, the Buck Rogers software does does have a license cost that goes along <laughs> yeah. with it. So it yeah. does help if, if people, um, you know, a lot of times I sometimes look at an app. And I'm like, ah, I don't know, a dollar. Uh, maybe do I really want that? But it does help. And the other benefit that I've learned um, is it kind of keeps trolls out Their Their trolls are kind of cheap. So they uh, they don't want to pay a dollar ninety nine just to mess with people. They'll go to Reddit or something. Right. So. Um, it keeps people out and it keeps it, it enables people that really want to share information to have a little more trust in it. Um, oh, <laughs> oh, no worries. That's, that's where I, I was going with it. So no, just so people know, we, we take turns raising our hand here on screen and it caught Scott off guard. So I'm really bad. Yeah. If I, if there's silence, I'll try to fill it. So just, uh, <laughs> well, um, let's cut this. Hold on. Let me cut this out here. So okay. three, two, one, uh, you had a question there, Brett. Yeah, so I, I actually wanted to make a point that a buck ninety nine for this app is the best value in bigfooting, next to, of course, renting a Flash of Beauty. But um, this, this I'm going to put up above Flash of Beauty uh, because you can have it with you at all times. And we were just using it two nights ago, right, Jill? We were we we're out to dinner with a friend, and we were talking about an area in Oregon. And he, you know, our friend says, well, I don't know, but I still don't know about Bigfoot. You know, have there ever been any Bigfoot sightings here? And I said, let me find out. And I pulled up the app and it went right to it. And sure enough, we, there were what, three or four sightings. There was a footprint that was found. There was a, a call that was heard. And there was a sighting all within about a 10 mile radius of the area he was talking about. And, and that made an impression on him. You know what I mean? Then he was kind of like, oh, okay. So there are Bigfoot in the area. So, I mean, it's just, it's a, such a valuable app. And it just wasn't last night. There have been so many occasions talking to people who uh, will say something like, well, I live in 
fill in the blank, any, any state. And, uh, and then they go on to say, surely there haven't been any Bigfoot sightings near me. And then I can, I do, I'll pull out the map and I'll say, well, let's see what, let's see what pops up. And they're always really surprised. And it's really cool to see because there's sometimes for fun, I will go on the map. It's just kind of like random, like drop in on a location and start to investigate and see what's going on. So, yeah. I was talking to somebody the other day and um, this is Mike, by the way. Hey, Scott. Um, somebody was talking to me about Bigfoot and there were, you know, a lot of people that I've found think that there's just one out there. And I, I'm not exactly sure why that is. I, I don't know. But I've brought up this map to them and it just blew their mind. They're like, okay, I guess it's everywhere. It's, it's a, it was an eye-opener for sure. And it's what I love. The other thing I love so much about it is it's, it's very convincing in that I can pull up a map and zoom in or zoom out and show people just how big of a phenomenon this is. Because like, like, just to piggyback on Mike's comment, we encounter that all the time. People think there's just one Bigfoot. And it's like, not at all. It, not only are they everywhere, but they're closer than you think. And your app proves that. It shows, you know, and and it's like this guy, this friend of ours, you know, he's been a supporter of the movie and stuff. And he's like, I really need to see one to believe it. And I, we get that all the time. I, I get it. But I, but I, I can pull out your map and I can say, okay, let's just say that that only one of these is the actual Bigfoot. You know, of all of these thousands of sightings, let's just say one of them was the actual Bigfoot, then they're real. You know what I mean? Mathem it's mathematically improbable that Bigfoot doesn't exist based on the data that you're collecting in your maps. And I think that's huge. I think that's awesome because like we say in the documentary, the data doesn't lie. No, it sure doesn't. I, I think one of the other things that's worth highlighting while we're talking about the map and just going there for fun even is at a high level, I added about uh, maybe a year ago, uh, big neon points that show you where a sighting was, whether it had occurred in the last seven days. Those are the big orange sightings that really jump off of the map. So you can, it brings it to the surface level because if you're trying to figure out things that you know when there's eight thousand points on a map you're not going to see everything so to make it more visible and help people keep up with the map easily we've got the uh like i said the orange dots that uh are the sightings or reports that occurred in the last seven days then there's the green ones that are reported in the last 48 hours so that's just a new report that came in and then we have the blue dots as they start to get cooler um that were reported in the last 10 days so you can see a, a new sighting and then um new reports kind of come in and fade off the map and that's that's just another feature that we have so people can see if there's something that's just recently occurred in their area or an area of interest or what's going on in the country and to your point you can't have one bigfoot and have two sightings one in new mexico and one in massachusetts that have happened in the last week that's a really fast bigfoot that's really covered a lot of areas. So it really, in a lot of different ways, the map having those features helps people understand a little bit more, even without realizing it, about what's going on with Bigfoot. Uh, Scott, I want to ask you about these uh, profile points and whether or not there's some overlap, things that you can study as far as behavior, 
um, seasonal effects, whether or not there's anything you can look at as far being as a predictive element on these map. What have you found? Oh, I'm so glad you asked this question. I've been on a tear lately about uh, the um, least cost pathways. I'm really, really, really into using some of the green infrastructure data that Esri provides that finds corridors for wildlife. And what I've done for almost every state, or at least almost every state that has a significant number of Bigfoot sightings, is taken the entire data set here and intersected it with these wildlife corridors that are established and scientifically documented for the purpose of green infrastructure, right? So um, there's been a lot of money put into this study and developing this data set to create what identifies least cost pathways between wildlife hubs. So when I say like a least cost pathway, what is that? That's the green area where animals travel. That's the least, um, has the least resistance or the least obstacles between a wildlife hub. So a wildlife hub would be something like a national forest or uh, a state park or something like that, these big islands. And then you can see all these pathways between them that are all the green corridors that uh, different wildlife travels. And the ones that are the darkest green on some of the maps I've made have the lowest resistance. So they're the best pathway. And what I've done is intersected the Bigfoot sightings against those and pulled out almost every corridor has intersecting Bigfoot sightings. It's uncanny and, and it's unintended. This is another a separate data set that I didn't develop that's almost external verification for me that this isn't just people imagining things. It's, it's traveling where other wildlife travels. So I've put out a, a big series on that, um, focusing in at a state level um, and showing all the all those corridors and how the sightings intersect. And what I've done is pulled out those specific corridors that intersect with uh, any Bigfoot sighting and put those in red. So you can actually see the Bigfoot corridors that Bigfoot uses the most on those maps. So I'm really taking external data. That's just one way to verify um, and analyze behavior like you're like you're asking. And then um, seasonal sightings, now that we have a date attached to the point, we can start to do a timeline, time analysis. Uh, you can see sightings at a, a, a again along a timeline as they build throughout the years from the 1900s all the way through today. There's a huge spike in the 2000s, huge spike. So I don't, if there's a correlation between media and, you know, some of the TV shows that were popular uh, and that huge spike, that's could be one influence, but there are a multitude of ways to look at, um, look at the sightings and behavior. But the most recent one is definitely, and the one I'm most enthusiastic about is the wildlife corridors that I've put about 20, maybe 30 maps uh, up on, on the Instagram account. That's another supplemental thing that I do. In addition to the map, I do analysis where I make standalone maps that look at the data in different ways. So I'm curious, Scott, in uh, the, the reports people are giving on, on the website, uh, on the maps, um, are you noticing like, in, like geographically, are, are the characteristics of the sightings, are they regionally different? Like how the encounters in say the Southeast or like in Florida or in, in Georgia, 
how do they compare to the ones up in Washington or in Ohio? Have you noticed anything like that? I've noticed that, um, well, there's two parts to that. I think the first part is when people are active in those areas, because in the Southeast, it's not necessarily as year round as um, like Washington would be. So that's one thing when I'm looking at it that way that I have to keep in mind is you need a person to have a sighting. So um, to analyze the behavior, I also have to think of it that way where, okay, uh, are, are these is this a seasonal activity or is this just when people are observing that behavior? But um, I, I do in the Southeast notice an uptick during springtime. And I think that has to do with potential mating behavior or uh, people are finding more tracks. The ground is wetter, things like that. Um, and then in the Northwest, it's more of a, I don't want to say a consistent pattern, but um, there are more people out hiking and I, we do have a lot more people that are a bit more uh, outdoors oriented hikers. And there's it's just a, a different culture in the Pacific Northwest when it comes to the outdoors. So we have a lot of backpackers that report uh, a lot of footprints lately, as a matter of fact. Um, so they're buying bodies of water uh, mainly uh, is where they're leaving footprints because the ground, again, is softer and it's more conducive to leave a footprint. and people are finding those. So um, I don't know if that answers your question about behavior necessarily, but it is, uh, there are some patterns there as to what people are seeing and finding um, in different areas and when, when it's happening for sure. Huh, that's really interesting. Um, so in a way, I guess I'm kind of thinking out loud here because I don't know, I'm convinced, uh, you know, that, different regions, uh, just like people, I guess, you'll get different behaviors, like in the hot, like the hotter areas versus the colder climates and whatnot. Um, and whatever, like the, the geographic landscape is, but yeah, just, I, I guess a lot of it is dependent on who's reporting it and how they're interpreting the encounter and like what they're kind of bringing to the, to the, uh, the sighting as well. Right, right. Here's a weird question for you, Scott. Have you have you gotten anything other than a Bigfoot reported? Like somebody saw a different type of cryptid and they've reported it on your page? Actually, I was just looking at one yesterday. Um, it's odd that you asked that question. It's almost like you're looking over my shoulder, but uh there was an interesting report from a hunter. Um, I can't remember exactly where it was. Uh, I, I, I'll, I'll send you the details. He took a picture and submitted it, and it looks like an alligator track to me. Um, but there are no claw marks. So it's four nubby like toes in the mud very clearly. And as deep as they are, you'd think they would have left some claw marks. And this gentleman said he's been hunting alligators for like 25 years. So he would know if it was an alligator track. And he said it just didn't look right. And he mentioned something about um, like a four-toed skunk ape is what he said. But it did not resemble any of the other tracks that I've seen submitted or anywhere else. This looked reptilian. It looked almost like a bird or reptile track but it just didn't quite fit 
what an alligator track would be because that's the first place I went like all right let's eliminate what this could be most commonly and looking at it I I see what he's saying there's just no claw marks on the edge of the on the edge of the um toes what would be the toes so yeah interesting are those bipedal or is that a quadrupedal quadruped track or do you know they overlapped so I assume it was all fours but that's an assumption right um I really that's one thing I've got to get better at is understand interpreting tracks I can say yeah that looks like Mm -hmm. a big foot track but I'm not on a Jeff Meldrum level yet. I'm working on it. So when people go to the website, can they look at these photos after they submit them? Let's say, can they go to the body of evidence? Does it lead them down a rabbit hole of videos and photos and getting, you know, maybe to know who the witness is? Do people go public? Some people, you have the op- option to, if you'd like to put your website, uh, if you have one or you want to point people to like a profile anywhere you've got when you submit a sighting. Uh, you can also attach photos and video, and that appears um, for download in the pop-up that comes up in the map when you're on the page. So I'm really not trying to gatekeep anything per se. Um, it's, 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 it's as transparent as I can be. The only thing I don't share, unless people put it in their report, is contact information. Because I just, uh, there are a lot of, I don't know who's coming to look at the site. I don't want people to um, get unwanted correspondence or anything like that um and some people aren't comfortable uh you know being public but this provides a place for them to share the information with the knowledge that they're not going to be necessarily like on a podcast or on a tv show or on their own personal website this is a platform where you have every option if you want to put your name out there sure cool um but you don't have to and i'm not going to do that for you i'm not going to assume any uh that's not my role. My role is just to be a mediator, I guess. And Scott, one of the things I thought about doing myself as a Bigfooter is someday setting up a booth and taking just black bear reports and cougar reports and to see just how many people have seen black bear and cougar compared to Sasquatch reports. Because as you know, Rich Germo says in the documentary, um, I believe he makes this comment. He definitely makes it out loud when you meet him that Sasquatch is not rare. I tend to agree with him that the amount of sighting reports isn't dictated on a website or a mapping project. It seems like the hesitancy, as we talk about in the documentary, is the reason that there's less reports. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I think um, there's a lot of uh, reasons behind. Well, for example, like you said, that Bigfoot's more common than you think. And it's perfect camouflage to live alongside bears. Um, if we talk about my sighting, which I hope we do, uh, living alongside, hopefully that's a good segue. Um, if we live alongside, they live alongside wild boars too in Texas, right? So even though there's not like a big mammal that could walk on its hind legs, boars, you know, are kind of big shadows in the forest, right? So you could you could easily dismiss seeing something like that oh it's just a wild boar you know or cattle in in texas and and bears are the same way i think um there is significant overlap i actually did a map about black bear range and brown bear range in comparison to the bigfoot uh mapping project database and there are areas where it's easy to say you know people could have mistaken mistaken that for a bear it's easy to do 
but it's also on the flip side of that, like you're saying, it could be, it could, if you just see something quickly moving through the brush, how do you know it was a bear? That's the first thing you go to. It's an easy explanation. It's logical. I think in, in Washington alone, there's like 30,000 black bears. So it's a logical, we have, we have numbers for that. And it's the first place that somebody without looking at, you know, this map would go to in their mind, I saw a black bear. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a very interesting way to think about it because they're the perfect camouflage in a way. Well, you set up the segue. Let's have you tee it off and <laughs> tell us your story. Sure. Um, so uh, I moved to Texas about 10 years ago and I got into, I really, really got into whitetail deer hunting. Um, for those of you that can't see me on the podcast, there's a, a deer on the wall behind me, but I <laughs> really got into it. And uh, I was actually out at my deer lease in 2021 after I had started the Bigfoot Mapping Project. After I had been uh, in the documentary with you guys, this all happened about three months after that. Um, I was bow hunting and I was walking out from a river bottom where uh, I hunt and sit. And that day I hadn't seen anything. Um, so I sat until sunset, a little after sunset until it was just dark enough where you can make out like silhouettes of things where you see like grays and blues. And there was the, the last ray of sun had, had finally gone dipped down it disappeared. So I got up, walked out along the barbed wire fence that separates the pasture from the river bottom where I hunt. And I was walking with the fence on my left towards my truck, which is at the, when I first got through the fence, probably about a hundred yards away. So I'm walking and I'm just kind of looking at the river bottom while I'm walking. And to my left, when I'm about 30 yards from my truck, I look and there's this dark blob. Like I said before, like I thought it was a wild boar. Big one. And I, I thought it was, wow, that's a big boar. I'm just going to let him go on his way. I don't want to cross paths and, you know, find out what this is going to turn out like if I, uh, if he, if he gets too close. So I stood there and just, I was just quiet not to startle it and let it, you know, keep getting to the river, but it didn't move. And then um, after what seemed, I don't know, probably 10 seconds of standing there watching it, it just stood up from behind this like shrub. And this shrub was about navel level. And when it stood up, well, I, I just, I was caught off guard and I literally just, it's going to sound stupid. I hate that I, this was my reaction, but I just stood there and said, whoa, just like that. And because I was in like, I was buffering, right? I was to, to use an IT, I was just buffering, like what is happening? And then it squatted back down. Like both of us were kind of like, I'd imagine like, what are you doing here? Like the Wiley Coyote moment. And uh, it squatted back down and I was standing there. And after I, I finished like buffering what was happening, I, I didn't know what to do. Like everyone says, I'll know what to do. I'll get my camera out. I'll do this. That's no, I froze. All I could say was, I see you just like that. And it stood back up like full frontal. I saw I could see massive shoulders, a no neck, big head, like a pointy head, big and like long. I could see even like the silhouettes of its like hand hanging. It's like, like a, not a cupped hand. It was just hanging big, long fingers and 
massive, massive arms. Like my hair is standing on the back of my neck right now. So <laughs> I'm talking about it. And uh, it just turned on its heel and, and ran through the Texas brush. And if you've been to the, the Katy Prairie in Texas, it is full of burrs, barbs, prickers, cactus, you name it. Everything there is pointy. And as fast as it was running with no flashlight through back into the thicket and then continued to crash through. In my mind, that is a definitive. There's there's no explanation for that other than Bigfoot that I could jump to. And of course. I, I, I got in my truck and I was like, what what just happened? So I, I called my wife and I was like, you're not going to believe me. You're not, I just saw Bigfoot, you know, and she was like, no, you didn't. It was a person, you know, she's like very skeptical, very analytical. She keeps me grounded, which is probably good. But I can, I can sit here and say there is no other logical explanation for me based on what I saw. It just cemented for me uh, what I'm doing. And, and there's to give you an idea why I think that there's the, the ranch I hunt on is 11,000 acres. It's 11,000 acres and it butts up to a wild a national wildlife refuge, which is another like few thousand acres. So we're talking square miles and square miles of just open, pretty much pasture and river bottom area where nobody lives there. Nobody's just going to be randomly hiking through this property. Number one, it's surrounded by barbed wire. It's private property. And there's just no reason for someone to be there after sunset. And there was no car. No, no visible path that they were on. No, nothing. So I was just elated. And then I got home and started like calming down. The adrenaline wore off. And I was like, nobody's going to believe me because this is the Bigfoot mapping guy, you know, who just had a Bigfoot sighting. And they're just going to be like, yeah, sure. He's really crazy. You know what I mean? So, but I will stick to it. That is 100% what I saw. And I, I saw what I saw. You don't have to believe me. It's, we believe I wish you, somebody Scott. was there. Yeah. All four of us believe you. I know. <laughs> I can say that right now. We and the and the audience believes you. There's a lot of people who believe you. <laughs> I appreciate that yeah. very much. And I appreciate the fact that you just talked about how you were not you didn't it didn't uh click to take your camera out or to document it. Cause you're right. Everyone says that. Like, well, if I always have a cell phone on me. And if I saw a Bigfoot, I would take a photo. No, you don't. It happens so fast. And like you said, you're trying to process and buffer. And I think that that statement alone is validation to so many people who have had sightings, even with a camera in their hand and did, were not able to uh, process what was going on or what they should do. There's kind of this like, I mean, this is the whole psychology thing that we identified early on when we started making this movie that nobody talks about, you know, and and I think it's so important to try and put yourself in the shoes of an eyewitness. And I think that people don't go don't go the distance. They need to mentally go the distance when they put themselves in the position of an eyewitness. And they also need to really understand how big or how tall 11, 10, 11 feet is, even eight feet. And, and what that, that size difference and what that scale can do to a person, how it freezes them. And it, I, I also think that there's, a, there's a, a component, a psychological component to where it's a defense mechanism 
where, you know, like other animals will do this in the forest, you know, you, you, you catch an animal off guard, it stops and it stares at you and it sizes you up and then it bolts, you know, it has to, it has to kind of go through that thought process of, can I eat you or can you eat me kind of a thing? And I, and I don't think humans are any different. I mean, we, we still have that reptilian portion of our brain left over from our early years. And so, you know, these people that were like, well, why don't you get a camera? Well, you know, and I say back to them, I say, well, have you ever seen a cougar? Have you ever seen this and that? And the other thing, where are your photos? You know what I mean? Where's your crystal clear National Geographic photos? You know, because everybody has seen the bear or whatever it is. And it's like, it's, you know, people don't realize that National Geographic and those and, and cinematographers and whatnot are in blinds for weeks on a t- at a time with professional trackers in order to get those shots. You don't, you know... When you watch a, a National Geographic special or something like that, and you see a snow leopard emerge from a cave, that guy literally was there for six months. And on the very last day, the snow leopard's like, all right, fine, you've <laughs> earned it. You know, um, and even then, even then to get good shots, um, even with a professional, Mike can completely attest to this. I can attest to this. It is like still next to impossible to photograph wildlife. It's hard for me to get get a decent shot of my cat, you know? So I think this is really, really important when it comes down to f- f- uh, photographs. And we address it all the time with people because people are constantly saying to me, well, why aren't there any good photographs? <laughs> keeping, keeping an animal in focus, that's my, one of my hobbies that I really thoroughly enjoy is wildlife photography. And I mean, it's difficult. Do you know how many thousands of shots I'll go through? just to get one that's decent um yeah and and then put put yourself in my shoes imagine if, if i did have a camera it wouldn't have done anything because it would have it it would have had to have a great light sensor because it was so dark it would have been another blob squatch and i would have been pointing at a shadow and it probably would have even discredited my sighting even more because people would have just said oh that's just a shadow can't i mean look at that so it's a blessing and a curse to to have so much technology, like you're saying. And now everyone just expects you to be an expert and be at professional level when it's just, it's impossible. One more, one, so more did- quick, one more quick point too, that I just want to add is that um, we talk about in, um, in a flash of beauty with Chad and Austin, how they had their, they had their video cameras when they had their, their sighting their video cameras were up in their camp and it was a steep slope it was hard for them to get back and they thoroughly believe that they wouldn't have seen that sasquatch had they had had cameras in their hand um and people people you know a lot of people out there especially the flesh and blood folks would be like oh yeah right sure okay um but i think there's some correlation to that too and, and in other words what i'm trying to say in a long about way is that i i think that um you may um it may be more than just luck you know there could have been something by design that you had that sighting and um and it could go all the way back to your earlier sighting as a teenager in new york where um i think i feel like there's some sort of like an imprint once somebody sees one they see another one and another one and it kind of continues for a lot of bigfoot researchers out there um anyways i just wanted to throw that random hypothesis out As I was saying, um, no, I'm just kidding, Brett. Uh, so d- Scott, did you ever go back and like try to size up like where you saw him standing, like how tall 
you think it was or like weight, like height, weight? What what are the what are the numbers? I did go back. I still I still hunt there. Actually, I um I still I don't feel threatened out there. I didn't feel other than being startled and surprised. I even after immediately after um the sighting, I I wasn't scared to go back for some reason, like a lot of people may be. Um, so I still go out there. And yes, to answer your question, I did go right to the spot where I saw the Bigfoot, and it's um. I couldn't find any footprints. It is, it's kind of a sandy loamy type soil there. So um, there are in some places it's really easy to find tracks and in others, it's kind of got like a mat of vegetation, which doesn't necessarily uh, indent very well or take impressions very well. So, um, but I was able to look at the shrub, which provided a nice reference. And at when I went there and measured, it was, like I said, navel level on the Bigfoot, which was like shoulder level for me. Um, and I'm like five, eight. So probably about around five feet. Um, it was very large. So I would say eight, eight and a half feet had to be. It was very large navel level. I mean, to the tip of his head, it was large. It was huge. And when I, when I, when I use the word huge, it's hard to put it in the context, but it was one of the biggest things I've ever seen on two feet, like a, just a gorilla size it was massive so scott there wasn't there wasn't a sense of fear when you had the experience there what you i mean it sounded like you kind of had your wits about you um, and then going back and you know and still being able to hunt i mean that's, uh, that's... it was more adrenaline than fear um yeah. i think i knew i was in a situation but i i it it didn't start to run at me or anything i didn't and it did. I'm, I've encountered a lot of larger wildlife. So I was close to my truck and my plan was just to try and run to my truck if I needed to. So I had a plan. I wasn't like terrified, but I was just more surprised. Um, and then when it turned and ran from me, I guess that just kind of solidified after the fact for me that it didn't want not, it didn't want to do any harm. It was more interested in not being seen. So I really don't mind going back because I'm hopeful that now I know there was one there that I I'm hopeful that I'll find something or see, see it again. So Scott, uh, we've interviewed a few people who've talked about whether, um, whether it was a hunting situation or a camping, but they had, they had, uh, guns with them. And the consistent, uh, comment we, we hear is that, it would not have done anything. And I'm not familiar enough with guns, you know, when people are rattling off what type and, you know, blah, 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 gauge and this and that um, and comparing them. But consistently we've heard that even if I shot it, it wouldn't have done anything. Did you feel that way in your situation? Like, did you feel like, oh, it's a good thing I had this gun with me in case it, it oh, turned? I I had a bow with me. There's no way. I oh, bow. Yeah. Okay. There's no way I would have been able to have enough stability to put, put knock an arrow on and, and shoot in the dark. And, you know, if I needed to, that's why I stopped in the first place because um, I knew if it, you can, a, an arrow will take down a, a big animal like an elk or boar or something, but you have to be very accurate. And, um, that's why I stopped. Uh, number one, it's not safe to shoot at night anyway, with unless 
you have proper equipment, which you can do in Texas with, you can night hunt for hogs, not deer, but uh, no, that's why I stopped. I, I had no means of protecting myself. And I don't know if you've seen wild, wild boar tusks, but they're, they're self-sharpening and they curve back and they can be about six inches long. They can really do some damage. So there was no way I was risking that. So but when to make a comment, when people, if it's okay, um, when people bring up like their, their guns or rifles won't do anything, I see what they're saying, but I also, uh, I think it does depend on the, the caliber that they've, that they've got like a, a 30 out six will take down an elk at 300 yards. You, it's okay. It'll probably take something else down. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a matter of opinion. I, I think accuracy this, plays a big deal. <laughs> I had this image of, I bet you a lot of people will know what I'm talking about somewhat, but I had this image in my mind of you shooting an arrow at it and it turning around and the arrow going through its head, like the old <laughs> Steve Martin comedy routine. <laughs> and these Bigfoot just running around with an arrow through its head like it's a, you know, a sliver or something. Um, but in all seriousness, <laughs> question for you what what did this do to you to reinforce your purpose for bigfoot mapping project so thinking about it after the fact i just realized like there had to be some kind of reason why i saw bigfoot and it it came after i started the project and we started to experience some success and support and and um recognition and to me, one of the things that I thought of after and when starting the project, but more so after, was, okay, now that they're really, really, like this cemented it, my, my, my belief that they're out there, what can I do with this data? And a lot of people are very concerned with the fact that people may use this data to go out and try to, quote unquote, hunt Bigfoot or find Bigfoot. And they're really worried. but on the flip side of that, I think one of the, the best things we can do is understand how they behave, where they are, what, what they do, and use that information to protect them and to conserve them. Because without information like that, you can't, you, you have nothing to go on. So I really hope, and the intent is that this information is used for constructive and positive um, uh, exploration for Bigfoot. And Hopefully one day when we actually notably def uh, discover Bigfoot and it's accepted widely, I think that this is going to be a great tool to transition to and start to protect habitat and individuals out there. One more random question for you, Scott, and this is like nerd talk right now. Um, what are the chances, in your opinion, that in the next four or five years, we accumulate enough data such as such as what you're collecting, what's out there, and with computational power, you know, seemingly surpassing Moore's law? What, what do you th what do you think the chances are that AI helps discover and like seal the deal in Bigfoot? I think there's a big it's already doing so many things. Uh, that people didn't expect AI to be able to do. It's predicted cancer uh, in some people. And um, 
a lot of other crazy things that have kind of blown my mind. But to to stay on topic of your question, I think with enough, what really comes down to AI is how you train it, right? So we really need enough data to be able to train the AI so that it can learn enough to make accurate predictions. Because if you don't have enough data, you just aren't going to get accurate information out. So it's garbage in, garbage out, same concept. So I do think AI is going to have a massive, massive role in predictive um, patterns for figuring out where Bigfoot's going to be based on what it learns from the data set. But I think AI is there. I just think our data set needs to grow. So given that where AI is and where it's headed and uh, the singularity, the possible self-learning, self-programming dystopian future, if, uh, if that's the you know, picture you want to paint with this, a broad brush, I guess. But let's say that doesn't happen, Scott, if we go to a future where AI isn't capable of predicting what's happening here, then what? What, what does that mean? What are the implications if, if all the cameras can't, if all the, the audio equipment, if all the witness, if, if computers can't predict on proving this and it just continues to be a legend, where are we at then? I think we're in the same, same place, really trying to do the same thing we're doing now and, and, and looking for hard evidence. Uh, Bigfoot will just be fine without us, right? Um, they've made it this far. So I think the, the impact would really be on the researchers. So we'd have to find and stick to, to traditional methods. We've, we've tracked and learned about wildlife ever since we could throw a spear, right? So we will just continue on that thread. And I think it'll just take maybe a little longer, but uh, that's all AI would do is, is move the schedule forward, I think. Well, okay. So let me dig deeper on that. What do you think the implications are if we never prove this? Is there something else afoot? Pardon the expression. Oh, like a conspiracy. Is that what you're saying? Well, you know, here we are with 4K cameras in everybody's pocket and yet a bunch of blurry creatures. Here we are with the Olympic project out here with, you know, possibly hundreds, if not more cameras scattered out. And, you know, we're still throwing plaster in the ground I'm looking at a future where it's possible AI may not catch up to the phenomena. If that's the case, do you think there might be something stranger going on? I think it's possible. Sure. Um, one of the things I've noticed, I'm, I'm more, I lean more towards the flesh and blood camp, um, but I'm not closed minded to the idea that I, I know there's stuff out there that can't be explained. Um, for example, and this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I was just in Sedona and I did a UFO tour and whoa, uh, that completely blew my mind. We actually saw Starlink too. It was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, to, to get back to your question, uh, like perhaps Bigfoot has perception, uh, that, that humans may not, uh, even if it's biological, like they can see infrared, for example, or, um, they understand our technology and they can, they can pattern it and identify it. It's, I, I mean, I know you guys have been out there walking through hiking trails. You can spot a, a trail camera a mile away. Um, and if, you, if that's your environment every day and you are as intelligent as a person or maybe even more intelligent, 
Um, you can, you know, where people have been, you can, maybe they can smell them. They can see their sign. They animals pattern us just as much as, if not better, uh, than we pattern them. So I think it could be a bit of both, um, maybe an interesting ability that Bigfoot has that we're not aware of yet, or uh, they are just so perceptive in their natural environment when it comes to, uh, the invasion of people and technology that they're just super aware. Um, I think an example, a good example would be, and I'll happily send the link to you, but I read recently there was chimpanzees that were uh, disabling traps that hunters had set for them. So that, that's a huge intelligence. I mean, they're, they're understanding the structure of the trap and able to undo it without getting hurt. So that's just a known species doing that. So I, I think there's two threads of looking at it. Like, what you're saying where they're they're maybe more perceptive or more supernatural or they have um known wildlife abilities and intelligence and i think i lean towards more the known the known side because i i haven't seen reports or uh the bigfoot i i saw didn't teleport away for example or anything so um and that's where i stand but i'm not who am i to sit here and say that uh you know i'd be that would be pretty arrogant to say that i know everything and have a uh, an opinion on that. Okay, so Scott, on that note, of all the reports that come in, are there any that have just been like you've had to read through them a few times just to kind of wrap your head around it? Like, is like in in question whether or not these are legitimate <laughs> reports? Yes, yes. There's um, just maybe a couple of weeks ago, there was one that came in where uh, a lady reported that she saw a fleet, I think was the exact word she used, of UFOs, and then Bigfoot um, was on the ground. I've got recently, I've got a lot more supernatural kind of woo UFO reports in the last few months. Um, I don't know why. That's just been the trend lately where I have to reread them because there's been like a lot of orbs or uh ufo type things that have been reported um and things that it's hard to keep my bias out of but those sightings stay in like, i do reread them and i'm like okay i'm skeptical but who am i i'm running the bigfoot mapping project i have to be open-minded so um yeah there's a lot of that a lot of that but the most recent one that comes to mind is she said she saw i think it was like 14 different ufos a fleet of them in the sky, and then she said she saw Bigfoot on the ground. I, I reread it a few mm -hmm. times because it was just like, wow, okay. I want to go back to the overlap of the map. Um, you know, you can buy maps that do overlay where you can put images over, you know, Google images and find interesting stuff. P people devote YouTube channels to overlapping on Google. By the way, people can go look up nerds that do that. It's kind of interesting. I'm one of those nerds that try to do it on my phone. But when it comes to your map, going back to the overlay, are there, you mentioned that um, these entrance zones and travel zones um, where Sasquatch likes to travel more often, perhaps. What about caves? Is there any evidence at all that caves or underground entrances are associated with these hot spots? Is, is that a part of anything you're looking into? Absolutely. Um, cave data is really hard to get a hold of. They're very protective of it, which I understand. Um, 
speleological data is what it's called as far as i've learned and um, there are a lot of societies that have this data for like uh, exploration in their clubs and things but uh, as far as being public uh, i think they're concerned about people endangering themselves by going to these caves so it's hard to find i can find find cave entrances and one of the places i found that was in nevada um now when you look at the nevada map it's very 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 sparse there are almost no sightings in nevada but when i lined it up with the cave data the sightings are within uh, they're almost on top of the cave systems in nevada not expected almost you couldn't make that up right these are all different people making these reports and when i lined it up the map is on the instagram and i'll i'll happily send everything we talked about along but it's it's just a weird correlation at worst and evidence at best, right? So um, yes, to answer your question, I, I think that cave systems do have something to do with Bigfoot sightings. Well, we have to follow up with missing people. Just, let's just go there. Oh, uh, well, okay. You're hitting all the, it's like you're scrolling through my Instagram because I made a, a map that compares the sightings, Bigfoot sightings to um, the missing the missing project the that's it's a it's a site on reddit where they have a map much like the bigfoot mapping project where people put the uh lkp's last known positions or of people on the map and um i have to do better analysis but just spatially there there's like a one almost a one-to-one relationship between a bigfoot sighting and a missing person in the map and that could just be like I'm, I'm not gonna claim that's anything because one, the missing person could be from 1990 and the sighting could have been from 1970, right? So that's why I say just spatially. Um, I haven't really parsed it out to to figure out the temporal relationship to really, really, really understand it. But when you look at it on a map, uh, the one thing that I will say that is interesting is location doesn't change, right? The time may change, but um there are clusters that when you look at the heat map of bigfoot sightings and the heat map of missing people there's interesting uh similarities mind-blowing our guest today scott tompkins the website bigfootmap.com and also project zoobook you just heard our interview with amy boo scott's a part of that as well it's been a pleasure having you on the show scott we hope to see you again real soon thank you so much for having me It's great to see everyone and it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you again. Thank you, Scott. Your work is so important for, you know, furthering the investigation of Bigfoot. So we applaud you for your effort and uh, your persistence and um, keep up the good work. Thank you. This has been a Resonance Production Podcast. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, you can email us at BigfootRevealedPod at gmail.com. Also, If you're just discovering the Flash of Beauty universe, you can watch our documentary on most major streaming platforms.